I'm John Dankosky, and this is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. It's where we take a look at how things work in the land of steady habits, how they don't work, and how to make them work just a little bit better. And I don't have to tell you that most of Connecticut is still not at work because of COVID-19, but the governor and his committee to get Connecticut back to work is slowly rolling out a plan. Businesses of various types will start to get back to work. A lot of it, though, relies on testing, testing for coronavirus, and also contact tracing, something that our guest Mark Pazniokas has been writing about. Paz is, of course, the bureau chief for the Connecticut Mirror. We're also joined by Jacqueline Rave Thomas, who covers education and housing and a lot of other issues. She's been writing about the status of nursing homes in the state. I started our conversation by asking Paz when exactly we can expect to get back to work in Connecticut. Well, it's going to be a four-step process. Indra Nui, uh, the former Pepsi uh, CEO, who is one of the people advising the governor on this, uh, she was very clear the other day and said, expect baby steps. Uh, and Dr. Albert Coe, the Yale epidemiologist, who's also leading that advisory group, uh, put out some pretty strong cautions that the coronavirus is going to be with us for a very long time. And we should think in terms of how we're going to live with this as opposed to thinking that some magic switch is going to be thrown and we're going to go back to the way it was. So, you know, it's going to be step by step. We will get to go to more places that we can't go to now. Um, We'll be able to get our haircut, hopefully, uh, very soon. But there will be precautions. You know, you're going to still be living with these ideas of social distancing, um, probably wearing masks uh, out in public uh, settings for quite a while. So, so, Jackie, from where you sit, where do you see this? What, what are some of the big things you're looking at in terms of when the state can start to reopen big pieces of the economy and, and when people can start to get back to normal? The governor announced yesterday that schools will remain closed for the remainder of the school year. The physical school building will remain closed, but the online learning instruction and remote learning plans will continue through the end of the academic school year. Um What that does for reopening the economy is complicates things a little bit because people rely on being able to go to school, their kids being able to go to school so that they can actually go into the office. So things like that will have to be reconsidered about what working looks like when parents are still at home with their kids because their kids don't have school anymore. Jackie makes a very important point that how everything is interrelated. You just can't open one sector and not worry about the ripple effect about, again, where children are during the day while parents are working. That's a big variable here. Yeah. What exactly is happening with childcare issues, uh, Jackie? I mean, uh, childcare centers like the one where my wife works have been closed for quite some time. Some are still open uh, to, to take care of kids during the day. What's exactly happening with daycare centers and other places where these kids can go if their parents are going to go back to work? So daycare has been allowed to to remain open. And in fact, the governor has encouraged daycares to remain open. And there's been a sizable amount of money that was made available by the federal government to route to daycares so that they can remain open, partially filled, so that they can accommodate smaller class sizes. And so to 
to limit the spread of infection, as well as have frontline workers still be able to go to work so that they're, you know, the nurses that need to work in our hospitals, their kids have somewhere safe to go. So those have remained open or been allowed to remain open the whole time. Um, Only about, I think it was 30% of the active, the center-based homes have remained open during this and they've remained, you know, very marginally filled. When it comes to the home-based daycares in the communities, you know, the family-based daycares, those have, um, about two-thirds of those have remained open through this. Again, still not completely full. Um, A lot of people still are keeping their kids home with them. The state has, so there is a, there is a date that parents can look forward to. So there is June 29th that the state has said summer camps can open on June 29th. They, it, they will look much different than they would have in previous years. There will be limitations about what the what how many kids can be in those programs. But June 29th is a date that parents can look forward to um, to not be at home with their with their children 100% of the time. Um, and as well as summer school may soon resume around that time as well. Yesterday, the education commissioner said that they're looking for early July to be able to open some summer programs. But in each of these steps, they're going to be looking to see what's happening with COVID-19. They're going to be looking at caseloads. Uh, they're going to be doing a lot of contact tracing. Um, and the assumption is that by the end of May, pretty much anybody will be able to get a test when they want it, when they need it, and get the results pretty quickly. Because if you can't get the results pretty quickly, that means if you're exposed, you know, you have to go home and hide for another 14 days. And the economy isn't going to work very well that way. Life is not going to work very well that way. So it, the, the testing is going to be pretty important. So you, you've been writing about contact tracing. And so there's the testing, which we've been hearing about from epidemiologists for months now. It's very important to ramp up. Connecticut needs to do more of it. Every state in the nation needs to do more of it. But contact tracing is a more recent plan that Connecticut and other states are are trying to implement. Where do we stand right now? And, and what exactly is it? Who would be hired to do this work? So they're, they're talking about relying on a system that doesn't really exist right now. And they are putting a lot of stuff together quickly, both the testing system and the contact tracing. So there's a, a national group of health directors and they have a standard and their standard is during a pandemic to protect the population, you really need about 30, what they like to call disease detectives for every 100,000 population. So in Connecticut, that means roughly they're gonna need about a thousand people. Right now they have 300 and those 300 include 30 people who have been trained and are ready to go at the State Department of Public Health, and then the remaining 270 are at the local health districts. You know, After all, this is Connecticut, this is New England. We do rely on a whole network of municipal departments. Um, now in this area, this is one of the few areas in which there is a fair amount of regionalization. There's 20 regional health districts. But you know the timing. For, there's no. There's never a good time for a pandemic. But this is an especially bad time when it comes to local health districts. Um, the state of Connecticut has a standard in state law about financial support to the local health districts. 
Uh, surprise, surprise, since the Great Recession of 2008, um, Connecticut has not met its obligation, nor have, nor have states around the country. Mm. This national group says that health districts, municipal health departments have lost about 25% of their workforce in the last 10 or 12 years. Mm. So, so Jackie, and you've been writing a bit about the other piece of this uh, puzzle, which is testing. I mean, how is Connecticut doing as far as testing and ramping up to this level that we need to get to to be able to send people back to work? So as many parts of the country, Connecticut is struggling to get the proper supplies to be able to ramp up testing. And so there have been several efforts to try and increase testing. And um, along the way, the state has has come into some obstacles of having the the appropriate agents, for example, um, or the the swabs to be able to to ramp that up. So. Um, Yesterday, the governor also mentioned during his press avail that it's also a matter of getting the testing to the places that need it the most so that there's some capacity at certain places where people aren't showing up, say, for example, to the hospitals, let's get them to the community health centers. Um, So it's also a matter of getting the testing to where it's needed. Um, But so if you look at the trend line of testing over since March 30th, when the state started reporting how many tests were being completed each day or were coming back to them rather each day, um, it's hovered around 2,800. There hasn't been a noticeable surge yet. Um, the governor has said, you know, we're aiming for two weeks to have that spike in, in testing availability. Um, and we're doing all these things to be able to get to that point. Um, it, the state just has not seen that surge yet. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll be right back to our conversation with Mark Pazniokas and Jacqueline Rabe Thomas in just a minute. But I want to tell you that becoming a Connecticut Mirror member today means you can join us for a fun and engaging event. We've been hosting a series of Zoom meetings where you can talk with our reporters, and we've got an Ask the Mirror webcast coming up on May 20th, which I'm hosting. Uh, Beth Hamilton, the executive editor of The Mirror, and Mark Pazniokas, the Capitol Bureau Chief, will be my guests, and you'll get a chance to interact with them. It's just one of many perks you get for being a Connecticut Mirror member. Go to the Mirror's website, ctmirror.org, and that way you can know all about the great events that we've got coming up, and also all the news that we've got coming up with reporters like Jacqueline Rabe Thomas and Mark Pazniokas. Paz, these decisions that are being made are not being made just by the governor's office. We understand the legislature has basically been on recess. And he has assembled a committee of people who are helping to make these decisions as far as when to open, when to open safely. It includes business leaders, it includes people from government, and it includes a lot of people from the medical profession. What do we know about that decision-making process? And also, what do we know about the transparency of that decision-making process? A lot of these decisions seemingly are being made behind closed doors. Okay, there's a a lot to unpack there. But yes, there has been criticism, particularly from Republican legislators uh, on a couple of counts. One, the legislature has been pretty much shut out of this process. And two, that there's not a whole lot of transparency. Um, The governor is a little inconsistent when he talks about this. Um, when it comes to the question of the Freedom of Information Act, he stresses that this is an advisory group 
that he's the one making the decisions. So he sort of likens it to uh, if you were relying on your staff, you know, you don't meet in public to have these discussions, you know, staff works on all this stuff and they produce material for the governor and the governor makes the decision. But the governor also, when we press him on things, will say, well, that, that you know, I will be advised by the scientist on that. So this is clearly a government function. In an ideal world, these folks would be deliberating in public. Uh, there are certain practical aspects. Um, it really isn't a committee that functions that way, as far as I can tell. And I have certainly FOI'd agendas and other documents to see if I can find out a little bit more. But these are folks who are doing what we're doing now. They're getting together via Zoom, uh, telephone calls. They're broken up into subgroups. It is a somewhat of an unwieldy process. There's a scientific group um, that are, are looking at all the public health aspects. What do we know about this virus? And then you have business people who are giving their input. You know, the head of the, you know, the chairman of the Connecticut Restaurants Association, obviously. Again, it, it's clearly a public function in an ideal world. Uh, you know, they'd be in a room where we could listen to them talk about this, but uh, that's not happening right now. And, and unlike, you know, the, the model that you talked about where, where staff is working behind closed doors on something, there may very well be. There may not be, but there very well may be conflicts of interest that we should know about. They may be uh, trying to push for agendas that that aren't necessarily in the entire state's best interest. I, I don't assume that, but but we can't know that that's not happening. No, that's true. Um, although one of the ironies here is this is how the legislature operates all the time. They sit down with lobbyists and industry people. And guess what, folks? Mark Pazniokas and Jacqueline Rabe Thomas or John Dankowski don't get invited to those meetings. CTN doesn't broadcast them. <laughs> yeah, and some of those people, their day gigs are as lobbyists. So that that's another whole layer. But anyway, please continue. No, so... Uh, Again, to me, there's not the bright, bright line here. Um, and I can't say it enough. It is a public function. There's no doubt about that. You can call it an advisory group, but it should be subjected to the Freedom of Information Act. And by the way, any material and emails uh, will be, if only due to the fact that there are a number of state employees on this, uh, participating in this group, including Paul Mounds, the governor's chief of staff. I think the legislature has been as much concerned about not having a formal seat on it. The, the legislators are being um, being consulted on this stuff, but that's a little bit different than being uh, part mm. of it. Although more than one legislator has told me privately, be careful what you ask for, because if you do get a seat at the table, you're going to own whatever it is uh, that is produced for the governor and what the governor then acts on. I, I, I want to turn to uh, another one of the issues that has been plaguing not only Connecticut, but the entire nation and it's the status of our nursing homes, our nursing facilities. Jackie, it's, it's pushing 60% of the deaths in Connecticut uh, have, have happened at nursing facilities, and that's similar to what's happened in, in other states. I just did a national radio special in which we talked about this issue from a, a nationwide standpoint, and one of the things that kept coming up is the reality that most of these facilities weren't staffed properly, they didn't have anywhere near the equipment necessary or the personnel necessary to deal with caring for our elderly on a good day, 
let alone during a crisis like this. So I guess I'm wondering if you can lay out a, a bit about what you're finding out about the status of nursing homes and what people at the state level are, are going to do about it, given this this tragedy. So, yes, the, the nursing homes that have had more than 10% of their residents have, have, have come down with COVID, those nursing homes are much more likely to have serious deficiencies, meaning infection control problems, you know, being able to provide basic level of care to residents, those sort of things. So an analysis that the Connecticut Mirror did found that of the, you know, almost 100 serious deficiencies that were found, 60% of them were in the homes that have been hit really hard by COVID compared to the homes where no instances of COVID have, have taken place, only about a third of the cases are there. So that that shows you, you know, almost twice as likely for serious deficiencies to be happening in the homes where COVID has been hit hard. Um, when it comes to the staffing issues, one of the, and this is a national issue, um, but Kaiser did a really great analysis of the national survey data that found that staffing is sort of a trend of places that have staffing um, capacity issues before COVID have also been hit hard by COVID. Um, an analysis that the Connecticut did found the same thing. It, it, it went in tandem with what the national perspective was on that. So um, places like, um, you know, Abbott Homes in Waterbury, when they don't have the appropriate staffing, it means that they might not have the capacity to keep their um, medical staff or nursing staff in certain parts of the, the facility so that they're not also cross-contaminating with residents who haven't had COVID, or they might have to um, you know, go from one home to another if, if, a if a nursing home operator owns multiple facilities, it might mean staffing shortages um, that residents, that the, that the nursing home staff are having to go to multiple homes and with them bringing COVID. To your question about what the state is doing, um, they have started with doing surveys of homes, of every single home to see what their levels of PPE, their personal protective equipment, and whether or not there is enough, um, as well as whether their infection control procedures are in place um, appropriately. The state has not released those findings yet. We have been asking for them and they have not released them. Um, so to be determined what their findings were, the state has said that they have found some violations, that they have not singled out any of the homes, they have not said what the violations are, um, and so um, to be determined what's going on in the nursing homes. Would we expect that if we find serious violations that those uh, homes would be named, that we would actually get some sort of a hammer in some ways from the state? Yes. So last week on Friday, um, Josh Jabal, the governor's chief operating officer, he said that they will be making them public, that um, they, the nursing homes have 10 days to respond to the state's findings. And then after that, that they will be releasing them um, and they will be making them public. Um, that said, there were some inspection reports that the state was required to do by, um, by the federal government that were supposed to be done early March that the state has not released either. Um, so the, um, to be determined when, when those will be released.
Paz, I want to turn to you for a last thing. And it's amazing that in a year in which we were looking forward to probably the most important election of our entire lifetimes, um, we, you know, we, we're going to now say that how we vote might be one of the least important things we can talk about. If we've got people dying in nursing homes, people unable to be educated, businesses closed and shuttered, but we still do have to worry about whether or not we're going to be able to have a free and fair election this year. What is the state thinking about the way in which we're going to vote this year that's a little different than what we would have perceived before coronavirus? Well, there are two things happening. The Secretary of State's office is trying to coordinate uh, a safe voting uh, plan. And the federal government has provided grant money. And the Secretary of State's office is administering that and basically is inviting municipalities to, or more than inviting, urging municipalities to come up with a plan on what election day will look like. And because that means finding polling places that are big enough that you can do social distancing. That means having uh, personal protective equipment in place for your poll workers. And let's be honest, it also means recruiting different and i.e. younger poll workers because you know they tend to be retirees and this is not a good place for somebody in their 60s, 70s and 80s to be spending uh, 14 hours. Nope. So there's that. The other question is more difficult, which is how do you make it easier to use absentee ballots in Connecticut? Connecticut has the tightest restrictions in the country on how you can use absentee ballots. There is a constitutional language that restricts how they can be used. And then there's also some statutory language. So. The short answer is, at the very least, uh, Secretary of State Denise Merrill is asking the legislature to loosen the rules of how uh, you can get an absentee ballot for reasons of sickness. State statute says it must be the voters, his or her illness. In other words, you, John Dankowski, must be ill, not that your grandmother is concerned about showing up in a crowded polling place in the middle of a pandemic. As I've recently outed her on Facebook, um, my wife committed what may have been a class D felony uh, 28 years ago when she was pregnant and she got an absentee ballot because indeed she gave birth on election day. But there was no, there was no real uh, place to check that off. You had to uh, be swearing you're gonna be out of town. She wasn't, <laughs> you have to be disabled. <laughs> The happy result is she got to vote and she has not been prosecuted for her uh, voter fraud. So Did, we're, we're happy with that. Well, I'm very happy about that. Does it does it does any of this get us to the point, though, where we where we tackle this uh, thorny constitutional question and actually make absentee ballot voting, i.e. mail in voting easier for people, regardless of COVID-19, because that's something that that many of us have been kind of pushing secretaries of state for for quite some time. Short answer is it's not going to happen anytime soon. To change the Constitution on something that there's a partisan divide uh, takes several years. It takes successive general assemblies to, uh, to vote for it. Uh, if you get a supermajority, if basically there's a, a complete consensus, you can put it on the ballot quicker. But even that would take two years because even if they voted on it this summer and everybody said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, and they put it on the ballot in November, it's not going to be in effect until the next election. So now the best they can do is basically loosen up that language on sickness so that at least now in the middle of a pandemic, people 
can get uh, an absentee ballot. Now, Denise Merrill has said she's going to mail every voter an application for an absentee ballot with a self-addressed stamped envelope. And that's great. That's a great convenience. But it doesn't change the fact that if you closely follow the law, most of the people who get those applications in the mail are not going to be able to use them. I have a feeling there might be some people filling out absentee ballots saying that um, seeing that they're sick. I can only imagine that happening. Well, as Denise Merrill said the other day, we don't have absentee ballot police. So <laughs> to our listeners, I think I can assure them nobody is going to come looking for you as long as you only vote once. Yes, exactly. Before I let you both go, I, I always like to ask people how they're how they're dealing with all this. Jackie, I'll start with you. You've got you've got a couple kids running around. How are you coping with all this? How are you coping with this sort of weird work life balance in which you're on Zoom calls constantly, you're, you're reporting remotely, and you, you've got a, a family running around? Am I allowed to say alcohol? Um. <laughs> you are allowed to say that. <laughs> I'm fortunate that my kids are of an age where they actually want to be around me. So I keep telling myself that, that my kid, I'm lucky that my kids want to be around me and that I could be stuck at home with a teenager in high school who wants nothing to do with me and I'm forcing them to stay home. So I, I could imagine that that would be a little bit different. So, so Paz, your kids are, are all grown up, so you don't have to worry about them, them being underfoot. How, how are you, how are you dealing with all this? It's, it's really not bad. Um, my, my youngest, uh, who just graduated from medical school, um, or so we're informed by an email because <laughs> that's how they're doing it this year. Um, so she has been home, uh, not terribly happy because, you know, there's no graduation. There's no, she's supposed to be actually doing a clinical rotation in an emergency room in Westchester. Um, all that was canceled. And then the rest of it is I am happy that at least there are some opportunities to go out and see people in public because reporting by phone and, and by Zoom uh, works well in a lot of situations, but there's no substitute for being out and, and seeing and, and just being there, you know, and that's what I really miss. Well, let's hope this all ends before Jackie's kids are in medical school and we have to worry about, about this whole thing. <laughs> I want to thank Mark Bazniokas and Jacqueline Rabe Thomas from the Connecticut Mirror, as always, for joining me. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, John. That's it for Steady Habits this week. If you're not subscribed to our podcast yet, please do it. Visit our page, steadyhabits.org, or just look for us in all the places you get your podcasts. We're just about everywhere. Our Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson. They were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. Thanks so much to Bruce Putterman and Kyle Constable, and also executive editor, Beth Hamilton. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll see you next week.